Will it make any difference? It's kind of a calculation that's going on in our minds a lot. Will it make any difference? Will it make any difference if I listen to the doctor and change my diet? Will it make any difference if I listen to the physiotherapist and uh, do those exercises that are supposed to strengthen my muscles? Will it make any difference? Will it make any difference if I listen to my parents and go to university and do that course? Will it make any difference if I vote in the Westminster election? Will it make any difference if I change my party loyalties and go for someone different this time? Will it make any difference if I do tactical voting? And here's a bigger question. Will it make any difference if I put Jesus first in my relationships, uh, in my priorities, in my life? Will it make any difference if I listen to the Bible and put God first in my life? Will it make any difference? And that is the question that actually God asked his people to consider who lived at the time of Haggai in 520 BC before Christ came. So please turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2 and you'll find that on page 949 in the church Bibles. Page 949. So while you turn that up, let me remind you uh, we, what we've looked at so far. We know from this book that on August the 29th, 520 BC, God stirred up the people who had returned uh, as exiles from Babylon to start rebuilding the temple after a 12-year gap of nothing happening. And why was rebuilding the temple such a big deal? Well... Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says this, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountain and bring down the timber and build the house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Rebuilding this temple would please and honor God. And we've already thought about over the last few weeks some of the reasons why. See, after 12 years of making excuses and focusing on their own homes and lives, Rebuilding the temple would be a clear public statement that they still wanted and valued God. It would be a very tangible way that they could show that God and his agenda was the first priority in their life. And as a nation trying to put themselves back together again, rebuilding the temple was a way to indicate that the God of Israel had not gone out of business when Babylon had trashed the nation. It was a way to publicly vindicate God before the world. And so it was also a visible sign of the covenant that bound God and his people together. It symbolized God's continuing presence living with his people and all the blessings that flow from that. If you see a run-down house, you think to yourself, there's no one living there, don't you? Is that what was going on in Israel? Rebuilding the house and saying, no, God's in the house. God's in our lives. God's at the center. And all the blessings that flow from that. And so, stirred up by the Lord, the governor, Zerubbabel, uh, the high priest, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people did got to work. And the whole temple was completed in about four years, less than four years. It was completed by 516 B.C. And what was it that kept the project uh, going? 
through those years? Well, it was the ministry of these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, whose books we have in the Bible. So at August the 29th, we got the, the first message. They got them stirred up. And then on October the 17th, three and a half weeks later, God had a message of encouragement to the people. And we considered this last week. Just at the time where they were beginning to wilt from the, uh, the challenges of the project and the discouraging comparisons with the past, they were encouraged to be strong and work with the assurance, firstly, that the Lord Almighty was with them, and secondly, with the promise that one day this temple, which looked a wee bit feeble right now, would one day be more glorious than the original temple ever was because the Lord himself would fill it with his glory. That's what we considered last week. And so they pressed on. They, they went up to the mountains. They chopped down the trees. They brought the trees back. They cleared the rubble. They prepared the timbers. They got the, the shape and the structures to build. So that was August, October. Then on December the 18th, 520 BC, the prophet Haggai had two more messages from God on that historic day, the historic day where they laid the stone foundations of the temple. On that very day, two messages from God. One for the people and one for the governor, Zerubbabel. I've been practicing that all week. Zerubbabel. I can say it. So uh, follow along with me as I read the remaining verses of Haggai chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. 
from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Just keep that open in front of you. Do you see the challenge of this message? It's there in verse 18. Give careful thought. This is uh, five times in this short book. We're told to give careful thought. Verse 18, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. The Lord God was asking them to look at their lives. And to see the difference that putting him first would make to their lives. On that day of laying the stone foundations of the temple, God wanted the people to give careful thought to what their lives were like before they made him and his work a priority. And then to give careful thought to what their lives would be like from from that day onwards after having put God first before their lives were blighted, after their lives would be blessed. That's the message that the Lord wants them to consider. Before blighted, after blessed. Now here's a spiritual lesson to observe, to note, to remember. That's what the Lord's impressing upon them. I want you to really think about this. I want you to mark this down. Remember this. Underline it. Don't forget this. So let's think about these two things, these two experiences. Firstly, blighted, verses 10 to 17. Their lives were blighted despite being very religious. So if you keep your fingers in Haggai, and turn with me back to the book of Ezra. You'll find this on page 475. 475 in the church Bibles, Ezra chapter 3. So even though this book's a long way from Haggai, uh, this is a, a description of some of the events are exactly around this time. So Ezra chapter 3. The exiles have just returned from Babylon. What do they do when they arrive back in the land? Well, chapter 3 verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation. And sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. 
Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those, uh, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid. Do you see that over these 12 years where they stopped rebuilding the temple, it was not as if they were a godless people. They maintained all the religious observances commanded of them in God's law. But all these outward uh, religious activities, all this attending of, of of God's gathering and fulfilling all the ceremonial uh, expectations didn't hide from God that this was not true worship from their hearts. Their nicely decorated houses, while God's house remained a ruin, showed up the true situation. That's the point of the, um, of the opening verses here. See, in practice, they, they, they did not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they had made other things in the place of God, put other things like idols in the place of God. Uh, they had other focuses. So they were very religious, but actually defiled. And so these two questions that Haggai asks the priests back in Haggai chapter 2. If someone carries some consecrated meat in their clothes and that clothes touches something, does it, does it uh, consecrate it? The answer is no. If, if, um, if someone is defiled by touching a dead body and touches other things, does, do those things become defiled? Yes is the answer. And the Lord says, well, it's exactly like that with this people and this nation in my sight. Whatever they do, whatever they offer on that altar is defiled. You can't make something that's defiled consecrated simply by bringing it into contact with something that's holy. All the outward religion could not make them acceptable to God when their lives were defiled. And instead, everything that they touched and did, even the religious stuff, was contaminated by their sinful priorities. And that's the problem with this view of Christianity that just sees it as, uh, I'm okay with God if I basically follow the religious rituals. You know, if I was baptized as an infant or baptized as an adult, and I, and I um, you know, go along to church every now and again for Easter and Christmas, and, uh, and I say some set prayers every now and again, that uh, basically I'm okay with God if I go through the motions like that, even though basically I'm doing whatever I want to do with my life. That sort of ritualism is, is what's being taken apart here. Their sinful self-absorption and neglect of God actually defiled all that they did. Just think about it. If you've got a, a, a clean glass of water here, just a few drops of mud and the whole thing is spoilt. But if you've got a, a, a cup of muddy water here, you can't put a couple of drops of clean water in and make it pure. It doesn't work like that. They were religious, but their lives were blighted. And, and the reason for that is that God was trying to get their attention. Verse 15. 
Give careful thought to this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. When they focused on themselves, they were not getting the harvest that they hoped for. Uh, Their crops were damaged. They were not getting the return on their investments for their hard work. And God says, I did that. I did it. And the purpose for this was to to wake them up. To make them consider their lives. To um, get them to turn away from their sinful self-absorption. God was acting he says, in order to bring them to repentance. But for years and years, they just didn't make the connection with their physical conditions and their spiritual state. And so they didn't turn back to God. They just continued to experience this blight. Now, my friends, what are we investing our lives in? We're all investing our lives into something, aren't we? This week, this last month, we've been pouring our life into something or other, giving away our time, and you only got so much time in your life. We've all been investing the hours of our very life into something. What has it been into? And, and, and what sort of return are you getting on your investments? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's the return you get for sin. My friend Mark Dever in a sermon, put it this way, maybe you're not guilty of neglecting to rebuild an ancient Middle Eastern temple, but you're every bit as guilty of neglecting the God who made you. God sent his son to die for sinners like me, like you. But if we neglect Christ, God will one day judge us. Because this neglect, the neglect of Christ, is the worst neglect of all to God. Maybe you're here in church today as someone who is um, doing the religious thing, but actually neglecting Jesus Christ. Well, don't wait any longer. Talk to God today. Say sorry for your neglect. Seek his forgiveness and receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of our service. Maybe we were here today and we claim to be one of God's people, a Christian here. And yet, actually, we've neglected God's church, his household, his congregation. As these ancient Israelites neglected the temple. I wonder, where does our discretionary money go? After we've paid all the the bills uh, for the utilities and food and clothes and keep a roof over our heads and care for our family, where does the rest go? How much of it really goes to just basically please ourselves? And how much of it is invested in supporting the work of, of the spreading of the gospel? Or what about our discretionary time? What do we do with it? If we did a, a timesheet this week of, of our discretionary time after you know, we've done our allotted time for work and the things that we had to do in the house and that spare time, what would we be putting in our sheets? How many hours of Facebook, video games, entertainment, TV? How many hours do we invest in 
reading God's words, in discipling others, in, in listening and encouraging others, in praying and serving others. Is Christ really at the center of our heart's desires or is he neglected by the pursuit of something else that's more dear to us in practice? Healthy disciples are, are those who love God. They love people. They grow, they grow in, in Christ-likeness together with other Christians. They serve Christ and his church and they go out into the world to engage in the mission to make disciples who love, grow, serve and go. That's God's agenda. Is it our agenda? See, the externals don't save us. But saved people do show it by the investment of their all into Christ. All for Jesus, we sang earlier. All for him. So let me be really clear. There are many calamities that come into our lives that are not related to our sins. I, I, I know... A number of you are suffering with such heartbreaks and heartaches. And I wouldn't want you to hear today that it's because it's something directly related to your sin. That's not the truth. There's lots of people here who are living for Christ and his kingdom, who are thoroughly God-centered, and they're experiencing all the sadnesses and tragedies that come from being in a broken, sinful world. But we do need to recognize that there are some troubles and stresses and difficulties that come which expose our sins for what they are. A friend was sharing with me a couple of months ago of the difficulties and heartache he and his wife had experienced as he pursued a direction in his life which he now sees as something that was basically motivated by his greed and upside-down priorities. And he said to me, why didn't, you, why didn't you beg me more not to go that way? I said, well, I did ask you questions about why you're doing that. In, in the difficulties of our lives, we should give careful thought to our life to see if God is actually waking us up to wrong priorities and to sinful choices. Now, there are tender-hearted people here who will keep dredging even if there's nothing there. Uh, it shouldn't take long. You know, this process doesn't take long. If nothing comes to your mind within about... Uh, a minute, you've probably got nothing to worry about at that point. But some people who have got tender conscience will be spending the whole week now just digging deep into their soul for any trauma. But no, it'll be obvious to you and uh, just ask some friends, they'll point it out to you. And when you see it, if it's sin or a wrong priority, what's the way forward? It's Repentance. Give careful thought, God said. Up to that point, blight. But from that day on, having turned to God, give careful thought to how things will be different. Now they're going to be blessed, God says in verses 18 and 19. From this day on, verse 18, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. I'm fascinated that God knows the calendar. He knows exactly the day. He's observing exactly what they do. What, it's what they do that counts. God sees it's more than just words. On the day that they've finished that back-breaking work and they've got those stones in place and they're dropping those stones on that day, God says, I remember this day. I'm going to remember this day, God says. Uh, you should remember this day and see the difference it makes when you put me first in your life. 
For them, this was undoubtedly going to be seen in physical blessing. When God says, uh, is there any seed left in the barn? I think it means this. I hope you've planted all your seeds because I'm going to make them grow into a bumper harvest this year. You just watch. Years of bad harvest, now watch. You're going to get a bumper harvest. Plant all the seeds. And this is very much in line with the Old Testament covenant uh, where, where God said basically covenant obedience or covenant blessing. Leviticus chapter 26, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees of the field, of the, uh, the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant you peace in the land. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. Undoubtedly, those are physical blessings that he's pointing to. And he wants them to see the difference before frustration, disappointment, when they put their work first, when they determined to serve God, they would experience peace, fulfillment, blessing. Now, I don't believe that the New Testament covenant promises us that when we come to Christ, we are guaranteed a Lamborghini. That, uh, you know, I'm not asking you to pray with me for a Learjet for my ministry. Um, I don't think the new covenant is promising us, promising us guaranteed physical wealth and health. That everything in our life will be marked by success and there will be no more problems. I do see this, that actually when people, uh, when God when turns around people's lives and drunks start getting sober and start putting their money back into their families, that their family does better. When thieves stop stealing and going to jail, they can actually get a job and earn some money and things get better for the family. That's true. If you obey what the Bible has to say and you work, you'll see certain fruits from that work. The lazy person doesn't see those fruits. Those things are still true. But actually, there's no guarantee that, because I'm trusting Christ, that actually um, my business is going to be a success. I'll be a Fortune 500 company in 20 years or something like that. That I'll have no more health problems. It doesn't promise that. There are too many verses that speak of the reality of suffering in the life of the Christian. But over and over, when I hear people giving their testimonies, and you listen out for it yourself, what I hear is something like this. When they became Christians, yep, there are certain struggles and difficulties and doubts that remain for them. But they also speak of this. They speak of how they've got a new joy, a new ability to forgive, new peace, new security, new purpose, new love, new hope a new integrity, a new wisdom, a new self-control, a a new experience of transforming power in their lives, all blessings that flow to them from the Lord Jesus Christ since they put their trust in him. I hear it over and over again. And I've also uh, known Christians who wander away from the Lord Jesus, and as they begin to turn for home and turn back to God, they confess that their neglect of God and their pursuit of selfishness did not bring them any lasting satisfaction didn't bring them any real happiness, but instead it just increased their despair and their loneliness and their fears. And all of that backs up the reality of what the New Testament tells me, that Paul rejoiced in in the book of Ephesians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
If we're in Christ, we're going to know these great joys and blessings of salvation. If we're walking away from Christ, we're not. And this is where Haggai's final recorded prophecy actually takes us. Because on that great day of laying the foundation stone of the temple, his words not only to the people, it's also to their human leader, the governor Zerubbabel. And on the day of laying the, uh, the foundation stone of the temple, uh, he reminds them of a promise that is basically pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, who is the true foundation stone of his people. These final verses speak of a messianic hope being restored. Just think about how precarious everything was for this leader, Zerubbabel. He was a leader of a tiny group of people, a population about the size of Livingston today. And all around them were massive empires and armies fighting for supremacy and control. And they had very little in terms of defense. They had no real army. In fact, they didn't even have a defensible city. They didn't have city walls to be inside of. In fact, their political and national identity could be destroyed seemingly very easily. Anyone could have basically rushed on them, invaded them, and uh, he could have been killed. And so with all that insecurity, there's this wonderful message from God to encourage him as leader. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I'll make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel does not need to feel insecure. The Lord Almighty makes these great promises to him. I will shake, I will take, I will make you my signet ring, is what he says. It's the other kings, the other emperors who should actually feel insecure, according to God. God's going to shake world politics. Kingdoms, foreign powers, and armies will come crashing down. For God had chosen Zerubbabel to be his signet ring. I don't know whether you feel dwarfed and anxious about all the big events in world history, the rise of ISIS, the concerns about uh, nation states expanding their borders and all sorts of things that are going on these days. But actually, God's people don't need to fear. Here's the incredible thing the Bible tells us. All of world history is basically being organized around getting Christ's church together. It doesn't look like what is happening here is central, but it's central in God's purposes. And Zerubbabel does not need to be anxious. In fact, when all powers and armies will come crushing down, because God has chosen Zerubbabel to be his signet ring. What's the signet ring? Well, it'll be a ring used by the king or by his representatives to authenticate his commands and make purchases backed by the royal treasury by pressing the signet ring down into clay tablets. And when people saw that mark, they knew, okay, this is backed by the king. Very powerful thing. I guess it's like the, uh, a MasterCard, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, it's the seal of authority, and it's kind of the MasterCard that backs all the decision-making. Don't worry, the treasury will pay. The king backs it. And consequently, that's actually a very important uh, 
ornament the signet ring. And so actually that's why it either hung around their neck or they put it on their finger. That, that authority, that power was held and cherished very close. It was guarded by the very person who bore it. Zerubbabel was going to be like that to God. God was going to place Zerubbabel on his finger so that the nations and even the heavens, even as they would be shaken, Zerubbabel would be kept safe. He'd be kept secure until God had done all the things he'd spoken about in this prophecy. But you know, there's another special aspect to this promise. Because if you know a bit about the family history, 100 years earlier, uh, Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim, uh, God pronounced a curse on him through the prophet Jeremiah. Let me read it to you from Jeremiah 22. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. And God did pull him off. He was the last king of Judah before they went into exile. But now God is picking up the royal Davidic line through Zerubbabel, and he's saying, I will, he's basically saying, I'm putting you back on. The whole project is back on. This is God declaring that all his promises of, of sending a Messiah king who would save his people and bring in an everlasting kingdom of peace, that all of that was back on track. Sure enough, if you uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy that tells you about the line to Jesus, who's there in verses uh, 12 and 13? It's Zerubbabel. This promise was not so much made to uh, Zerubbabel as the man, but to Zerubbabel as the heir to David's throne and the predecessor to Christ. He was a chosen guardian of the chosen people. He was a rebuilder of God's house, the restorer of the dignity of the line of David. He was a type of Christ pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because these great promises in this book could only really make sense in the light of the coming of Jesus. It is Jesus who is the one who fulfills this promise to fill God's house with glory as he is the glory of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who can take our defilement away. Do you remember the story Mark tells it of a leper? A leper who came to him and he begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice, it's more than just, can you heal me? It's, can you make me clean? Yes, it's, it's about being made whole, but it's also about the defilement of his condition being taken away. And I love it that Jesus looks at him and filled with compassion, he reaches out his hand and he touches him. Any other person doing that, they would have been defiled by touching the leper. Jesus touches this leper, this defiled man, and says to him, I am willing be clean and immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured it says he's the one through whom we experience every spiritual blessing we we don't love God and love other people as we ought but he did and yet he offered his life as a sacrifice and a substitute in our place upon the cross so that all who trust him receive forgiveness receive acceptance receive every spiritual blessing and he is the one before whom all other earthly powers and authorities will one day be shaken down and will bow. So will it make any difference? 
if I put Jesus Christ first in my relationships, in my choices, in my life? Will it make any difference if I listen to the Bible and put God first in my life? Be in no doubt. It will make a very great difference both now and in the life to come. When you bow your heads and reflect on your own life today, let's apply God's word to our lives. Give careful thought to your life today.